Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's RAI that examines America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. Eight years ago, I had the highest honour of accepting your nomination for President of the United States. In a sweltering convention centre in Miami in August 1968, Richard Nixon accepted the Republican nomination for President. Tonight... I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. He'd ran before and lost to John F. Kennedy in 1960, and then he'd run for Governor of California in 1962 and lost, sulkily telling the press afterwards that they wouldn't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. But in 1968, he was back. The times had changed. Students now wore jeans, not ties. Black people's right to vote was protected by the Federal Justice Department. The US was mired in an unwinnable war in Southeast Asia. Was Nixon the one to sort it all out? Stand up and let's strike the band up. Who's left in this land up? Yes, Nixon's the one to go with. America's in trouble today, not because her people have failed, but because her leaders have failed. And what America needs are leaders to match the greatness of her people. I want to ask you, uh, Rick, can you sum up why Richard Nixon, possibly more so than any other character other than... uh, Donald Trump, who's a name I wanted to avoid mentioning altogether in this podcast if I could, that Richard Nixon managed to wind up liberals, more so even than Ronald Reagan, right, it seems to me. I mean, you know, there's a famous description by Hunter S. Thompson of Nixon representing that dark, venal and incurably violent side of the American character. I mean, what was it about Nixon that wound up liberals quite so much? He was an eliminationist. He wanted to destroy them. He wanted to drive them from the fields. I mean, if you listen to the tapes over and over again, he has these fantastic paranoid visions of a conspiracy of liberals. He lied about them. He he spread poison to try to get the rest of the country to share his views. No American president in the second half of the 20th century inspired more hatred than Nixon. And yet, after winning narrowly in 1968, Nixon was re-elected in 1972 in a massive landslide. And then he became the only president in history to be forced out of office because of scandal. His enemies delighted in his downfall. Yet nowadays, most historians think that Nixon was one of the most consequential politicians of the last half century. His own career may have ended in ignominy, but his politics of deliberate polarisation transformed his party and with it the terms of engagement of American politics. In the 1972 election, Nixon's southern strategy paid off. White southern voters turned in droves away from the Democratic Party of their fathers and grandfathers and the rest is history. No one has done more to flesh out this narrative than the multiple prize-winning historian Rick Perlstein, author of four magnificent and meaty books chronicling the rise of the conservative movement from Barry Goldwater to Reagan and beyond. The second in the series is Nixonland, the rise of a president and the fracturing of America. 
Yet, maybe there's another side to this story. John R. Price worked on Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaigns before joining Nixon's White House in 1969. He served on the domestic policy side of the first Nixon administration, eventually becoming special assistant to the president for urban affairs. Recently, he's published The Last Liberal Republican, an insider's perspective on Nixon's surprising social policy. Let me, if I might, just add his proposals for national health insurance, which basically are Obamacare. Private sector insurance carriers uh, reaching virtually everybody in the population with far more generous benefits than Obamacare. And Nixon proposed covering pre-existing conditions 40 years before the Affordable Care Act. The book draws on Price's first-hand experience to argue that far from trying to destroy the welfare state, Nixon wanted to strengthen it. So, was Nixon the first of a new breed of right-wing populist Republicans, or the last of an old liberal tribe? I spoke to Rick Perlstein and John Price to find out. I want to begin this conversation in August 1968. Nixon went into this convention as the clear favorite, but there were two other potential nominees, of course, in that year, Governor Reagan of California and Governor Rockefeller of New York. John Price um, was working for, for, for Rockefeller. Can Rick, can you just describe to us the what those three characters represented uh, in terms of their the various factions and instincts within the Republican Party? Sure, we can start in the previous presidential election in 1964, in which basically the conservative wing of the Republican Party took over the party and nominated a candidate that was uh, far out of the mainstream of not only American ideology at the time, but even Republican ideology. There were a lot of Republicans who did not support Barry Goldwater. But by 1966, a lot of the ideas that were declared kind of dead and irrelevant to American politics in 1964 because of Goldwater's uh, defeat, we're making a comeback because uh, the civil rights movement uh, basically moved up north. And for decades, for generations, really, the South had said, well, when it's your ox being gored, America will be shown that the North is just as you know racially biased as the South. And what happened was a, a civil rights bill was considered in Congress, and it was going to um, uh, basically make it illegal to discriminate in housing. And uh, the Republican Party made it official policy to, for the first time, go against the civil rights bill. They had supported the one in 1964. They had supported the one in 1965. And one of the reasons the Republican Party won such a big comeback in 1966, I demonstrate, uh, was because the Republican Party was associated with basically protecting white property owners from kind of this incursion from African-American neighbors. And uh, so the, the party was very much in flux. So going into this convention in 1968, uh, Nixon is the heir apparent, but he's basically seen as a, a two-time loser. And so there was a lot of doubt about him. And so both Reagan um, and Rockefeller, Rockefeller kind of a little more officially, but Reagan kind of under the radar, hoped uh, to take advantage of the fact that to win a convention 
in, in the United States, these party conventions, which are these very bizarre televised rituals that with a lot of strange politics that goes on, especially then in back rooms. So I don't know, John could, could recall this, but there was, you know, kind of strategic talk between the, the, the Rockefeller and Reagan camps that we're going to try and deny Nixon a first ballot, uh, victory. And then to use a American football metaphor, they were going to tip the football up in the air. And, you know, whoever won, you know, fair enough. The American football metaphor is one that would have been close to Richard Nixon's heart, wouldn't it? John, is that, I mean, you, you were you were in charge of the delegates for, for Rockefeller. I mean, did you, did you try and do what, what, what Rick has just outlined there and work with the Reagan people? It was less explicit, I think. My impression was it was a tacit understanding by and large. And Rockefeller and George Hinman, who was his political wheelhouse man, the National Committeeman from New York, Hinman, I don't think, had any idea of those delegates being expected to vote for Nelson and Rockefeller on a second ballot. That wasn't going to happen. Rockefeller, he was the northern, moderate, big government figure, very pro-civil rights. The Rockefeller family had consistently, for decades and decades, been in the vanguard of funding things like the historically black colleges, funding the civil rights movement. Reagan, while he governed a very big state, having been elected in 66 as governor, he in a way was the Elisha who picked up the mantle of Elijah, the fallen prophet Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater had been not just a conservative, he had seemed radical. And the bulk, uh, far and away, of the members of the Republican Party, not the delegates to the 64 convention, but the members of the party opposed Goldwater for the nomination in 64. They didn't want him. They wanted Rockefeller or Scranton or name somebody. So uh, Reagan um, in 1968 was seen as the man who would uh, embody whatever the spirit of radicalism was that uh, Barry Goldwater had represented four years earlier. And you, you were talking about Rockefeller and his support for civil rights. Of course, Barry Goldwater, Arizona senator, had opposed the civil rights bill, hadn't he, on what we would sort of now call libertarian grounds, really, uh, the, the line that the federal government shouldn't interfere in states in, in a matter that should be left to the states. And later, Barry Goldwater conceded it was the worst vote of his life. Nevertheless, it was pretty significant. In terms of the lines of political divisions in the 1960s, Goldwater had opposed the civil rights bill. Rockefeller strongly supported it. Reagan um, had aligned himself with, with, with Goldwater very strongly. Is it is it is it too much to say that in that um, setup there, Nixon was coming through the middle? Yes, it is not too much to say. It is absolutely on target. Um, as Hugh Scott once said to me, Richard Nixon is the man with the portable middle. Can you talk about how and why, how far and why you think the Republican Party coalesced around Nixon? Uh, after the the convention, what were the factors at play there? I mean, John is perhaps hinting at one of them, which is, as is always the case in politics, which is fear of the other side. And of course, there's a couple of weeks after the Republican convention in Miami was the Democratic convention in, in Chicago with shouting on the floor and violence outside the, the convention hall scenes that will be familiar probably to many of our listeners. So so what's going on there? I mean, is this is, is the Republican Party being kind of driven, driven together by anxiety? about the um, alternative? I and mean, can you sketch out, remind us something about what, what were the broader anxieties at work in American society in that summer of 68? I mean, this is, you know, the period in which, uh, you know, just that 
previous May uh, on the one of the most you know distinguished campuses. You know, think Ox- Oxford. You know, in, in the United States, in the middle of New York City, Columbia. You know, police and anti-war students. You know, basically brawled. You know, brawled each other bloody. You know. And uh, all sorts of, you know, very disruptive things were happening. We're, we're talking about the fourth straight summer of terrible uh, racial uprisings in the city of America, most recently after Martin Luther King's assassination in April of 1968, which led to, you know, like two straight blocks of, you know, the west side of Chicago basically burning down, you know, riots that lapped up against, you know, the most swank neighborhood in Washington, Georgetown. You know, when, when one of AIDS, one of Lyndon Johnson's aides said they're, 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 they're about to burn down Georgetown and Lyndon Johnson said, I've been waiting for this for 30 years. <laughs> Cause these were the, these were the, you know, where the, the cocktail parties that he wasn't being invited to, right? So, um, there was a lot of fear and, and the campaign of Richard Nixon centered around the theme of law and order. Yeah. That if you elect Richard Nixon, you know, all this chaos is going to abate. And quite brilliantly at the convention, he gave a speech which spoke to many higher aspirations, but also talked about, you know, uh, police sirens in the night. In his victory speech that night, Nixon described a vision of an America that was descending into anarchy on the Democrats' watch. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And two weeks later in their convention in Chicago, the Democrats played into Nixon's hands with a violent, chaotic convention that shocked TV news viewers. Police swirling all around us, people screaming, being dragged to the paddy wagons. A scene of wild disorder. And, you know, over the course of the uh, fall, terrifying television commercials. You know, the most memorable one was the scene after a riot where a bright white mannequin decapitated was kind of lying in the middle of the street as if, you know, she was a white damsel who had been, you know, uh, defiled, right? It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. He very effectively centered a message around the idea that the Republicans were going to take charge and drive from the field these forces of anarchy that had been loosed in the land. He famously talked about the the, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. Do you interpret that speech and the campaign that followed in 1968 as an attempt by the Republican Party to change the basis of its electoral coalition? Was this an attempt to seek new voters or to consolidate an old Republican coalition? No, the the idea really was in the air, and all sorts of kind of Republican intellectuals were saying that basically the, the New Deal coalition, which was African Americans and kind of white union members, was the spine of it, was ripe for the plucking. And Nixon and John Mitchell were obsessed with this. And, you know, 
a little bit more, you know, once they're in the White House and they begin to kind of consolidate their power, this idea of reaching out to Catholic vo- voters, what were then called wet white ethnics, which basically meant basically people from Europe, like Italy and Ireland. And, you know, the most famous expression of this was in uh, November 2nd of 1969, in which Richard Nixon gave a very famous speech in which he called this forgotten American the silent majority. And the language, it was basically a racial dog whistle. In America, a minority is, you know, the minorities are the African-Americans. So saying, you guys are the majority, right? And we're going to, you know, and he, 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 he was an incredibly brilliant rhetorician when it came to kind of uh, speaking to the dark angels of the public without, you know, announcing um, that, uh, you know, he was, he was wonderful at having kind of a front stage dialogue and a backstage dialogue. Uh, by 1970, when he's kind of going out in the road for Republican candidates, he's basically explicitly campaigning, basically that you're voting for um, the people who are tearing America apart and his, you know, rages as we heard them, you know, on the, starting on the tapes the next year about uh, basically this coalition between uh, insurgent youth and insurgent African-Americans and these feckless kind of WASP elites, you know, from the Ivy Leagues. Um, are, you know, just they'll curl your hair. John, you were the founding member of a moderate Republican society. You'd worked for Nelson Rockefeller, who was a staunch supporter of, of civil rights. Um, you are now working in the Nixon White House. What Rick has given us there is is now, and no, not, not least thanks to Rick's own books, now quite a familiar way of understanding the uh, rise of Richard Nixon after 1968, that it, it represented an important shift in the Republican Party uh, towards the embrace of a Southern strategy, a, a white majority strategy, a dividing of Americans into one sort of Americans and another kind of American, or non-Americans and Americans. And, but how did it seem to you? You were, you were working inside this operation, and you were a moderate Republican, and you were a supporter of the civil rights movement. How did you read it? Well, I think that one way I read it is how Nixon handled Holmes v. Alexander, which was the United States Supreme Court decision, which finally put its foot on the gas pedal in terms of implementing the Brown versus Board of Education decision in the 1950s in the Eisenhower Court. Here, Nixon fought internal White House pressures from Bryce Harlow, Pat Buchanan, Spiro Theodore Agnew, to basically not move forward and enforce the Supreme Court decision. Nixon finally just said at one point, he said, I can't do that. He said, the attorney general can't do that. He's got to enforce the law. So that is one side. I admit there are many sides to Richard Nixon. And uh, if I could uh, just tell you something that Leonard Garment once said to me after we were in the White House, Len being uh, Nixon's law partner from the law firm and a great friend of his. Uh, and Len said to me, you work for a difficult man. The changes, the mood changes. He said, he reflects in him what every one of us has in us, good and evil and which the society has within itself, good and evil. He moves from rage to generosity, from eloquence to something other. It's just who he is. And that's, I have that in my diary, and I think there's, it'd be hard to sum up Nixon better than Len Garment did, who'd known him intimately. 
I saw a, a, a policy side of Nixon. And as, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan will agree with me, I say that Richard Nixon was the final gasp, the final extrapolation of Dewey, Dwight Eisenhower, moderate republicanism. And in the social policy, that's just just absolutely on view, where he, where the conservatives could not believe what he was attempting to do. They were appalled by it. And the liberals wouldn't lift a finger to help him because, my God, he was Richard Nixon. You know, he was the Antichrist. <laughs> so uh, there he was. Yes, a complicated man in a complicated situation. But I think one thing that Richard Nixon always was able to do was understand the political forces that were arrayed with him and for, and, and, and against him. And presidents don't necessarily choose the policy, policy context they work in off, off a shelf or from a catalog. They're given to them. I think if you really want to understand where his heart was, you have to look at uh, a couple of texts. Uh, one was his memoir, in which he said, you know, after we won our landslide in 1972, now I'm free to do what I always wanted to do. And, and, and what he wanted to do is can be seen in the budget, actually, that his White House filed for Congress for FY 1973. And it was basically the kind of budget that Ronald Reagan would have filed. It was basically an attempt to reverse the Great Society and the New Deal. But he was extremely shrewd and extremely patient. Just to give one example, uh, John mentions Len Garment. And Len Garment's uh, memoir, which is a very fun book, because uh, he was, was a very fun guy. He was a jazz musician. Uh, he records Richard Nixon telling him in 1966 that the Vietnam War cannot be won and that the only question is how are we going to settle it on terms maximally advantageous to you know the United States' interests, which means that for another seven years, he pursued a war that he knew was not going to achieve America's strategic aims and lied about it. Uh, and when he was president, you know, oversaw, you know, tens of thousands of American deaths and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese deaths. Right. But the fact of the matter is, you know, yes, he, he signed lots of liberal legislation. A lot of that liberal legislation came to his desk, you know, with veto proof majorities. One example um, that I, I know that I do want to ask John about is, is, is Nixon's family assistance plan. So that was not a, a not a piece of not a piece of legislation that came to him in the way that you've just described, Rick, so, uh, drawn up by liberals on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, at all. I mean, John, I know this was something a little along with um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan that you were closely involved um, in, in, in working on. I mean, what, what would you, uh, can you describe to us, first of all, actually, what was the, the, the proposed family assistance plan? How would it have worked? As my understanding is that it's something pretty much like a universal basic income, which is now once again, a kind of popular political um, idea. Um, but can you explain to me, explain to us what it was and, and the fate of it and what it tells us about from your, as you understand it, of Richard Nixon's political priorities? A family assistance plan was basically, as you say, a guaranteed minimum income in the form of a so-called negative income tax. That means basically an income-adjusted cash payment to families with children, in the case of Nixon's family assistance plan. Uh, it had, by 68, seen bipartisan roots, antecedents, from Lyndon Johnson, Council of Economic Advisor, economists like Peckstein and others. And Lyndon Johnson would have nothing to do with it. And there were a lot of frustrated 
bureaucrats at HEW, Health Education and Welfare Department, and the Poverty Program, who were very interested in advancing this idea, but it was DOA, dead on arrival with Lyndon Johnson. And then there was a change of administration. But before that, in January of 68, three days before Nixon declared in New Hampshire, I had dinner with him and six or seven other people at the Lynx Club in Manhattan. And I said, you know, you ought to be thinking about the negative income tax. It now has these bipartisan roots, Congressman Whalen from Taft's old district in Ohio, you name it, uh, that there might be something there. And he said, yeah, welfare reform is clearly something I've got to address. I'm not yet ready for the negative income tax. But welfare reform was not unlike the immigration issue today. You touched on it. And it was a hot button politically. And it was racially charged. There's no question. It was the welfare queens in Reagan's term. And so what Moynihan and Nixon started to put their heads together on, uh, they worked toward this program of a, a minimum income floor for families. And it was it took a lot of work with Nixon. But unlike certain other more recent presidents, he read every word of briefing papers. He got into the the British poor laws of the early 19th centuries with competing memos from uh, my boss, Pat Moynihan, and from one of the conservatives. And what happened was he finally came around to it. But then he told Moynihan and me, he said, you know, I'd been in favor of it for months. But what I wanted to have happen was a debate where everybody understood the real issues, the gut issues involved, like work incentives, work requirements. Will people stop working if they get a payment of some kind? Same thing you hear today. I read a Wall Street Journal piece this week about idling. Have you heard this term now? People want to idle. Well, that's the very thing that drove a spike uh, through the family assistance plan 50 years ago. Uh, so Nixon then embraced it. And fought like hell for it. And this is what people don't realize. But there were political considerations, right? I mean, this is the, the Janus face of Nixon. And there were two, basically. I mean, one was the glory that Nixon could have harvested of ending poverty in America. And I think that really appealed to us a more proper. Reagan later testified it was redistributionist. It was socialist, in other words. In other words, it was un-American. It was certainly not Republican. And so it was the point at which the conservative antipathy to Nixon really gelled, and it was the issue on which it coalesced. And two and a half years later, the conservatives declared victory. Nixon tosses in the cards on FAP. He had fought for over two years to try and get it across the goal line, but met with increasing conservative opposition on philosophical and political grounds. This leads me to the Nixon Reagan uh, relationship, right? So, I mean, Rick has written um, four four big books charting the rise of the conservative movement, and and Nixon and Reagan are obviously two of your central characters, Rick. I mean, how how do you see the 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 transition uh, in the Republican Party from from Nixon to Reagan? Did 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 Reagan pursue a political strategy that had already been? pioneered and proven to some extent to be successful under Richard Nixon, or did he mark a new departure? Well, there's a real melange here. I, I'll tell you a quick, fascinating story that comes directly from the archives in uh, in, uh, in Yorba Linda, California. Uh, Which is Nixon's, Nixon's hometown. Right. So um, when Reagan was 
running for governor and he won the Republican nomination, Nixon kind of called him to the mountaintop to get his briefing on how to run for governor in California. So this is 1966. Right. And there were shorthand notes from Rosemary Woods that were translated into, you know, non-shorthand. And basically, Ray Nixon gives him a, a lecture about exactly what he needs to do. He's about to go to Washington to kind of have his coming out party as the Republican nominee. And Reagan does none of this stuff. <laughs> and he wins. And he does the Reagan stuff. And to make a long story short, it's all in Nixon land. Basically, Nixon in 1968 runs much more like Reagan in 1966 than Nixon in 1960. So um, at least in the politics of kind of appealing to a kind of Republican populist, you know, kind of base, Nixon adopts Reaganism. And then, you know, Reagan kind of uh, builds on Nixon. Ironically enough, Reagan saw the world in terms of good guys and bad guys. He saw Nixon as one of the good guys. So he was Nixon's last defender, you know, down to the day in Watergate. And all the pundits were like, Reagan can't possibly have a political future because everyone knows that he's associated with Nixon and Nixon is is garbage in the public's eye. But but in the Reagan eye view of the world, what he offered people was a vision of innocence, that Nixon was a victim, that the real enemy were the liberals who were trying to steal the election from him because he'd won this uh uh, um, landslide in 1972, the Democrats are worse, that all the dead people in Chicago are voting. So in this very strange kind of dialectical sense, it is the fall of Nixon uh, and Reagan's ability to kind of um, give the public permission not to feel shame about America in the wake of Nixon and in the wake of Vietnam, which allows Reagan to, um, you know, attempt to, just like John says, uh, operationalize that conservative agenda that saw something like a social welfare provision like the family assistance plan as un-American, as anathema. So it's a really complex and rich relationship. Yeah, that's that's beautifully described there. John, how do you how do you see? I mean, you you met and you knew both of these men. I mean, how do you see the relationship in terms of the, the history of the Republican Party? As I listened to Nixon and Reagan talk, I felt as though I were atop a continental divide. With Nixon the water was flowing downhill in one direction, which was toward an acceptance of big government and an acceptance that the government had a role to play in assisting those who were marginalized economically and otherwise. With Reagan, the water was going down a very different hill, which led to things like the the 1990s welfare reform, so-called. I mean, Rick, what, what's, what would be your assessment of that? Can Nixon be counted as the last serious liberal Republican? Well, uh, I think that that was definitely the policy context of the times. Uh, if you wanted to be a president and make your mark, that was what was seen as what you had to do. But I think we have to give Richard Nixon the last word uh, in his memoirs. And he announced his intention in his second term to make a hard right turn. And I think that uh, once he believed he had the mandate to do so, he kind of said, basically, this is what is in my heart and this is what I intend to do. You know, even if a lot of good stuff happened or tried to happen along the way. In the I'm sorry, term. Rick, but in 74, in his second term after that election, 
he worked secretly with Edward Kennedy, liberal Democratic senator from Massachusetts, to try to get a national health insurance program in the basement of an Episcopal church on Capitol Hill. The fact is that Ted Kennedy, uh, till he died, said it was the worst mistake he ever made not to make that happen. And Chris Dodd, who was his buddy, good Irish Catholic Northern United States senators, told me at lunch four years ago at the Alibi Club, he said, not once, he said four or five times, Ted Kennedy told me that, that his greatest mistake in his career was not to work with Richard Nixon to get that across the goal line. John, in the end, you, you've written this book called The Last Liberal Republican. I mean, in the end, isn't really what you're writing about the, the death of a liberal strain within the Republican Party, which is different, very different from what we now call liberalism uh, in, you know, in post-1960s America, but which was, of course, a tradition of which you were a part as a young man in the Republican Party. And insofar as Nixon um, articulated um, support for some elements of, of, of liberal republicanism, he was doing so because he himself had been, um, had been part of a Republican Party in which that kind of liberalism was an important force. Um, so is this, in a way, is, is your book, The Last Liberal Republicanism, actually really just a requiem for now a long-dead um, Republican Party, which had was already dead perhaps by, by 1980? And, and in that sense, Nixon was merely kind of articulating the, the kind of last gasps of a tradition, ventriloquizing perhaps the last gasps of a tradition rather than necessarily carrying the torch himself. Yeah, I don't think ventriloquizing would be correct, but... Uh, uh, yes, I, I agree that uh, it was the end of the line. And Pat Buchanan agrees with me. And he poked his finger in my lapel and he said, John, he said, we, meaning the hard right, were winning all the political battles. You were winning all the policy ones. The historian Rick Perlstein and former Nixon staffer John Price, author of The Last to John, Nixon's behind-the-scenes policy work, even though ultimately unsuccessful, was evidence that his core instincts were to make big government work, to provide health care and a basic income for every American. Far from trying to smash the dominant liberal consensus of his time, he tried to make it work. But for Rick, in the end, what matters far more is Nixon's political style, his deliberate polarization of the electorate, his racial dog whistles, which were, unlike his social policy, dramatically successful. They helped him build a new Republican Party, whiter, more Southern, much, much more conservative than the party of John's preferred candidate in 68, Nelson Rockefeller. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI in Oxford that examines America from the outside in. And if you've enjoyed this, please listen to the many others that we've recorded and like or subscribe. The producer was Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.